Hello and welcome to the 11th episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand. On today's show, we'll be talking about ethics in fieldwork with Dr. Jamila Rodriguez of the University of Birmingham and Dr. Louisa Schneider of the Max Planck Institute in Halle, Germany. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. As per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you are having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Jamila, would you like to start? Um, so I'm having a very plain green tea drink um, on a very fancy cup. It's a line that says, I eat people and I like doing it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was great. <laughs> Um, I just found this cup uh, in the place where I am right now. Um, I am a visiting lecturer at Birmingham University and I've studied dance. I was a professional dancer for 12 years back in South Africa. Um, I've done my degree at Cape Town University, then I did my PhD at Rambutan University and my PhD shifted from dance into anthropology, religious rituals and body movement. So I kind of left dance as such, but I went into the body movement and I tried to understand um, why people move the way they move and what does the movement expression means when they want to reach a spiritual connection, when they want to reach a god or an ancestor or a spirit or whatever you, you name it. Um, I've done my PhD on Sufism um, with women, uh, religious embodied practice. So I look into a particular Sufi practice named Hadra, and I look into this body movement that this Hadra ritual had. And I kind of make questions to women as such, how do you reach Allah? How do you reach God through the body? Mm-hmm. Um it was quite challenging. Anyway, uh, after this, I shifted a little bit my interest from Islamic rituals into shamanic rituals. So now I am actually working on a postdoctoral research and I'm looking into cultural ideas of healing and illness. And I'm trying to understand how do shaman women Um, use their bodies as communicators to the spirits. So in other words, they use their bodies to work and that's their source of income, that's their empowerment, but it's also the mechanism that they have to connect to the other side, the cosmic side. Um, And that will be most likely in South Korea, where I've been this year, and in Okinawa, um, islands of Japan. Great. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, Louisa, could you tell us about yourself? Uh, sure. So I'm, I'm having coffee. I basically always have coffee. Um, so that's an obvious one for me. Um, I am a postdoctoral researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Law and Anthropology in Halle Saale. And um, I'm doing a research project uh, where I study privacy and intimacy among rough sleepers in Germany. So particularly, I'm interested in how people who do not have shelter and so who do not have spaces to retreat to and close the door behind them, um, how can they live intimate and family relationships? 
okay. basically in the public sphere and what happens when they experience problems and or violence in these relationships. Um, do they engage with the state and do they try to claim their rights and do they try to claim some sort of protection? And if they not, if they don't, then what if any alternative mechanisms do they develop? Um, yeah, I hold a new field in anthropology from the University of Oxford and um, there I studied violence and intimate relationships in Sierra Leone. Uh, and what I did there is I basically combined an analysis of uh, policy and legal approaches to violence prevention with more grassroots uh, understandings of the role and place of violence in relationships um, to understand, you know, really the meaning that that violence can have and the different responses that that are triggered by that. Um, and there I did research in households, communities, courts, and also um, with men and boys who've been convicted for um, perpetrating intimate partner violence or sometimes only for sleeping with their girlfriends who, who are now serving sentences. Okay, yeah. thank you. That is very, very um, interesting information from both of you. I suppose what we do is we'll start off um, as to why basically this this idea kind of came came to place. Uh, one of the things I had mentioned before we even started the recording uh, was this article that had come out by Amy Pollard called Field of Screams. And she had published it with Anthropology Matters in 2008. And she discusses the sort of um, undiscussed issues that students face when they come back from field work. And I think it's a lot of issues that um, staff, postdoctoral graduates, researchers, what have you, are also experiencing, and it could be issues of isolation, it could be um, relationship problems, it could be bereavement, and she lists a host of issues, and then she provides some advice at the end of her article in terms of what universities might be able to do in order to better prepare psychologically uh, people for doing field work. Um, but aside from that article, the concept of ethics in fieldwork has been a continual discussion topic in academic forums, especially regarding anxiety during fieldwork, the protection of informants, fieldwork safety, and the accountability that universities have towards their students and staff in order to secure their safe return from the field. But rather than immediately dive into a discussion about university accountability, I thought I would ask each of you to tell us about your experiences regarding ethical concerns during field work and how these issues came about. Um, and if it's okay, Louisa, could we start with you? Yeah, of course. Um, well, so I think the most important thing is that, that we probably all think very hard and long about the ethical concerns that may directly result from our research. So, I mean, of course, I thought a lot about what it means to ask people about um, their intimate relations, what it means to ask people about their sex life, about problems that they may have there and, and so on. But, um, but I think particularly if we work with vulnerable groups and groups that, um, that appear quite often in um, public and also policy discourses, um, then we're also confronted with a whole other set of topics and issues that we might not have considered because they're not directly related to the questions that we're asking. Um, so in my case, um, these things were related to, um, to violent crimes quite often, um, uh, to drug use, to uh, mental health issues, 
So uh, what I realized quite quickly when going into this uh, research is that um, in Leipzig, um, people who sleep rough, people who sleep on the street, um, they have quite a few tags attached to them that, um, uh, and they, they navigate um, different groups of people, social workers, police, and so on, who, if you study this group, they also uh, become aware of you and they're trying to get information from you um, about um, the people that you are studying. And um, so in my case, that was, that was usually related to, you know, um, where people go, what sorts of, um, yeah, uh, drugs they use, what sorts of issues they have, whether I'm aware of anybody who's, um, you know, committed a crime or who's on the loose or who's not sticking to their probate. I mean, quite often people um, don't stick to the uh, rules of probation that they have or don't see their probation officers. And then the question is where they are and so on. So for me, I think the main ethical reason was the question, what does my position actually do here? What responsibility do I, do I have um, to the people I study and what responsibilities do I have to all these different people who are, who are asking me to take position, basically, or who could ask me to take position. Okay, great. Thank you. And Jamila, what about yourself? I think I'm going to get the lead from Louise, which she says, what is my position here? And I think, you know, back in South Africa, I've done my research in South Africa, Iran, Cyprus, and, um, and Afghanistan. And the main research was back in South Africa. And I think for me, it's more to do with my inside-outside position. So that was the thing that, that I always had to be quite aware because my identity itself was already hybrid and complex. Um, obviously, I got a South African accent because I live there, but I'm not South African as such. Uh, then you have issues of race and color and uh, your position as your religious position, so you have to be quite aware. When you enter in a religious group, what is the perception of the group towards you? So it's not just A, you are a woman, B, you are South African, but actually you're not South African because you weren't born here. Uh, C, you are a single woman. Um, D, are you Muslim, are you not? And what are your intentions? So when you get into a religious group, it's a very intimate place, right? It's a place where uh, things are very much in enclosure. So your position needs to be negotiated all the time and you need to carefully think which answers and how you're going to answer. Uh, things such as, why aren't you married? Why don't you have children? Um what are your intentions in Cyprus and what are your intentions in South Africa? Um, which group are you attending the rituals? Because obviously there was more than one brotherhood back in South Africa. So why are you choosing this brotherhood and not mine? So <laughs> there's a lot of these inside-outside positions. I think that was the most challenging for me was to navigate between being and not being. Yeah, That is really interesting. Um, Louisa, if we could 
get back to you for a second. Um, since your topic is quite intense and in that you worked and lived alongside homeless individuals who in many cases had violent criminal track records, how did you go about doing field work in order to ensure your own safety? Um, so I had quite a long time where um, I sort of got to know people and I, I had these what I call preliminary visits where I would go and uh, spend time at places that are frequented quite often from the people I was interested in um, and just spend time there and observe and get to know people and but then at the end of the day return and come back and return and come back and that went on for almost half a year um, until I got a sense of um, well the place and the people and the sort of interactions that that I'm dealing with um, and then I, I was also looking for, um, because I spend quite a lot of time at places that are, um, well, that are hidden, um, where nobody really goes, so, you know, like under bridges and abandoned buildings and so on. And um, so I, I made sure that, especially in the beginning, I had somebody whom I trusted um, to go who was there and then I would go and otherwise I wouldn't. Um, and of course that raised some questions in terms of uh, trust, but I felt that um, for this research, research relationship to work, it was also very important that I'm being open and transparent about my own limits um, and also about the worries that I have. So I was quite open uh, in saying, look, uh, I'm not I don't feel too safe going there or I'm just not sure <laughs> what that may mean. And surprisingly, there was a lot of understanding for that. So um, I could kind of go step by step. Um, yeah, and if something didn't feel right, I didn't do it. Okay, interesting. Um, Jamila, how about yourself and your field work? I think um, safety is actually, believe it or not, is also an important one. Um, not so much... Uh, I think in South Africa, although South African is an extremely violent country, um, but I think mostly in Iran, on this, you know, the, the short, two short uh, field trip research that I've done, and there was always this constant um, idea of me being watched all the time. So it's almost like I was playing inside of an action movie and I didn't know who was the detective and who was the bad guy or the good guy, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Absolutely. So, and that has a lot to do with the fact that, uh, you know, it, it is well known it's, uh, that there is not freedom of speech in Iran. So it's not like we are doing right now, having a cup of coffee together and talk openly about whatever topics we choose. Things are very private and uh, in Iran and things are particularly uh, careful to who you talk and how you talk and where you talk. So topics such as this, for example, will never happen in a coffee place. Okay. Um, it would happen on a private home. And then you never know who is inside and who's listening and who is going to report to whom. So just a really interesting example was I was doing uh, yoga sessions with some women in Dohasar in, in, um, in the north of Iran. And all of a sudden, uh, the class got cancelled. 
only weeks after I found out there was one woman inside the group that reported to someone else and the, the classes got cancelled. So that was just one example of uh, where is your position? Who can you trust? Who can you not trust? You are there talking and researching and genuinely interested about these women and then all of a sudden one of them actually reports you. So you don't know. It's It's complex. You don't know how much you can give, how much you're going to receive, and what you do with that information. Interesting. Yeah. That, and, and I think, honestly, um, that speaks more to the reason why these sorts of discussions, whether it's in podcast form or otherwise, need to be discussed in an open forum so that people are aware of the possibilities that could happen depending on where people do field work. Speaking of sensitive regions and sensitive topics— um, Jamila, since you work on religious identity in both South Africa and Jeju Island in South Korea, and you're also um, considering work in Okinawa, Japan, could you explain um, how which which area, basically, based on this idea of insider outsider, was easier to conduct from an ethical standpoint, and why? I think most definitely South Africa, and I think there's you know a lot of features. Um, English, you know, it's a language that everyone speaks, so it's, you don't need translators. Uh, I kind of go by Afrikaans, but I don't really speak Afrikaans, but I could understand if there was words that needed to be spoken in a different language. Um, there was also two of the participants were students from the university in a different department where I was. Um, so there was a different kind of community. Back in South Korea, things were very different because there was always an interpreter in between. So if I would go and approach the shaman, uh, there was always someone in the middle being, you know, the facilitator. And I think it's these things that, that, that we mentioned before uh, recording. Um, how do you deal with the other when there's a middleman so how does the information get passed? How is it filtered and interpreted? And how does the interpretation then follow these colloquialisms and cultural ways of putting words that probably you didn't mean it that way, but they get transformed, right? Because, you know, it's this kind of so-called lost in translation. Absolutely. And I think yeah. that can be so, um, quite a few anthropologists, I think, having worked with, um, maybe not myself, but those who have worked with translators, also have similar issues that may arise. Um, Louisa, uh, in terms of your research, again, because you know, you're dealing with um, those who are rough sleepers, what are the ethical implications that come with living alongside and researching individuals who use or sell drugs, commit violence, or speak about crimes they have or, or are about to conduct? Um, well, so I think the first um, the first important thing is to be really clear and informed about where you stand legally, right? Because wherever you do research, there's actually some laws uh, which may um, mean that you have to report certain behavior. And if that is the case, then you may also, I mean, you have to discuss this with the, the people you're conducting research with. Okay. Um, in my case, uh, what I did is I... Um, I introduced this research to um, to the police and to security bodies, and I was very clear about what I'm doing. Um, but I was also very clear that my focus is not neither on violence, um, on this uh, sort of criminal record, 
um, nor is it on um, on drug use uh, or addiction more generally. Um, and and I asked them, um, you know, uh, what they expect of me and whether um, it is all right for me to do this and not report back um, because I didn't want to be caught in a situation later where um, an issue may arise and it is known that I have data on this or that I have information about a certain person and then I am made to reveal this information and I wasn't uh, clear on this before. Um, and then, of course, I was also very uh, clear with the people I conduct research with that, um, you know, the, the police and legal authorities know that I'm here, they know that I'm sort of observing these situations um, to, to show them that um, there is a, a sort of barrier and to give them the agency to decide what they want to share and what they don't. Um, basically, um, I'm not, I don't have to report or say anything about um, stuff that happened in the past. Um, but if there is some ongoing uh, threat or some harm that could be done, so if somebody is talking actively about harming somebody else, um, then I, I am obliged to report it. And I think mm -hmm. that, that for many researchers, and they may work on completely different topics, um, but this is really something to consider um, because it, it changes your position in the field quite drastically. Right. And I suppose when you've worked so hard to develop relationships with people, and again, this idea of trust is so crucial, not just in, you know, our respective fieldwork sites, but in life in general, if that trust is compromised and if the person conducting research might come across as a traitor, um, yeah. That could be quite serious, I would imagine, not just for our research, but in terms of one's well-being and safety as well. Precisely. And, and I think a way to go around that really is transparency, because what I learned is that people are not surprised by the fact that you have thought about this and you have made certain decisions about where you stand. Um, but people are very surprised and suspicious if uh, you kind of try to evade the question or you say, I know everything will be confidential or, you know, nothing will ever be revealed because it just doesn't seem to be very real world like. <laughs> Absolutely. May, may I make a question to Louisa? Absolutely. <laughs> Louisa, um, did you feel at any stage that you were acting like the middleman? Hmm. Um no, understand where I'm coming no. from because you know the, you had these ethical you know considerations and responsibilities to what you say and not say to the police but then you also are at the same time trying to gain trust of your participants so you know that's where I'm coming is it yeah. how does it feel is it is it almost like a middleman position or no, I think that the good thing was that, I mean, the way in which I escaped this middleman position that I really, really did not want to be in is also because, you know, this is not, not my expertise and I could have done a lot of harm in that way, was precisely mm. by preventing this, by making it very clear to the police that, you know, I, I will not report back on people. Is it still okay for me to do this, even if I won't report on them? And mm -hmm. once I knew that I don't have to report on them unless there is this active, um, you know, unless somebody's threatening to do some something to somebody else tomorrow, um, then I also was kind of freed of that 
um, of that responsibility to report and of the possibility that later on I will be asked to report. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Well, and I suppose if we could just continue on that theme um, in terms of conducting research, and I think I can apply this to both of you, but because we're talking to Louise at the moment, I'll continue. Um, when you were conducting research with people on extremely personal issues, how did you deal with topics such as violence, one's sex life, and informants' fundamental needs? Um, so I always approached it very generally. Um, so uh, I, I did say that, um, you know, I because, I mean, in Germany, all these these living circumstances are so, so very much tied to having shelter and to being able to, you know, close your curtains and close your door and, and have privacy. Um, I always started kind of from this, um, you know, it is very hard for me to imagine um, how this kind of life looks like if you have it on the street. Um, would you be willing to talk about this? And we went from the very, very general topics to very specific topics. And this took months. I mean, building this kind of trust and building this kind of um, rapport took trust. So, I mean, in the beginning, we talked more about, you know, general relationships that people had in the past or their broader ideas about, like, what family means or what intimacy means or what a sex life means. Um and in terms of violence, it went the same way. You know, when do I feel protected? When when don't I? And what is okay in a relationship? What isn't in a very general sense until people felt comfortable to talk about um, their own personal experiences. Um, of course, while we were having these conversations, I was also accompanying them daily. So I kind of saw their relationships as they unfolded. And I also saw a lot of issues and problems that they were having as they unfolded. And so it became kind of easier um, being there. It became easier to say, you know, I mean, yesterday seemed to be very difficult. <laughs> Would you like to talk about this? Um, and then we got into the, the more detailed questions. But I never specifically asked about like, okay, so how do you have sex or, you know, absolutely. Uh, no, that would, I don't think that would go down well with anyone, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I may, Jamila, uh, one thing that I've, is, I've noticed in readings, I've noticed from personal experience, and, I, and listening to Louisa, and yourself, um, I think that this is a common thread that that those who conduct ethnographic research or whether they are journalists, whether they're anthropologists or, um, you know, political scientists, what have you, is uh, this idea of being almost like a therapist mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that uh, you're conducting research on sensitive topics. And once you have built that trust, if people feel this need to confide in you, you kind of play a passive role as a sort of um, untrained, shall we say, psychologist. So if we could turn to you, Jamila, in terms of dealing with this idea of dealing with sensitive material, did you ever feel that you were sort of like a, a therapist in that sense? Absolutely, all the time, 24-7, <laughs> especially, yeah. I mean, um, but when you say new... It's impossible to become neutral, isn't it? Because right. 
even when you are the so-called imposed therapist, you will have your own agendas. You always bring your own baggage to the field. Yeah, your own background. You are A, B, C, and D. You have a certain age. You grew up in a certain way. You also have your own way of perceiving the world. So I think the most challenging thing is how do I not give an opinion according to me as Jamila, as the person that I am within my own uh, system of values and morals, and how do I detach myself in that particular moment of my personality and I really embody my role as a researcher. And it's difficult because obviously within field work, and we all know this, you, you do develop relationships with participants. So wanting or not, the, some participants do get close to you. So it's how to you distance yourself and to remain that neutral but not being neutral because, because you never, because you're going to write about it. So you chose to write about it. How, how does one become neutral when one chooses to write about the topic? So there were certain times where if topics were quite extreme or I had, you know, occasions where women would start crying, the first thing that I would do was, would you like me to stop recording? So um, some of the women would say yes. And they would tell me a lot of things off record. And that's challenge number two. What do you do with information that it's off record? Mm. Yeah. How do you do this now? And particularly those moments are the most enlightening moments because it's the very emotional part where the person is full on in the emotional level and he wants to let it all out. And that's when you grasp the most important information. So then... You know, how do you do? It was all these considerations. And sometimes I would go back to the same participant and I said things like, do you remember such day where you mentioned these? And would you be okay for me if I would write about it? So, you know, and then the participants sometimes, you know, it's quite emotional. They don't remember. Or they would say, yes, absolutely, that is okay. And so... There's always this negotiation between what you think it's right for your project and what it's uh, what can you actually put on the project. I don't know if I'm making sense. No, you're yeah. definitely making you're making lots of sense to me. So um, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and if we could, I'm just sort of switching a little bit. To get back into this idea of uh, language interpreter, because, yeah. again, you, you talked about how, you know, if there's something that's sensitive, if you speak the language, you know, you can kind of circumnavigate uh, a problem. But mm -hmm. if you are talking through an interpreter and, you know, that interpreter may or may not choose to filter some information, in which case exactly. you're having to trust that interpreter that they are going to be making the right interpretations based on what's being said. Mm -hmm. Um could you tell me what sort of ethical implications can come from that? Um, how the information is filtered and how do you pass on the information, how the information gets to the participant, how does the participant goes back mm -hmm. to the interpreter and then the information comes back to you. So it's filtered uh, several times. So you never get access to the raw material, right? Because you do, you, you don't, 
understood completely the colloquialism or the cultural matter of how the person will, you know, interpret the question and answer. So if you have a professional, and then I think it also depends if you have a professional interpreter that you paid for the service, yeah? Mm -hmm. And then when you have someone um, that is helping you out on your research, which speaks for the English, but it's not a professional interpreter. And I think there's a, you know, there's a difference there because, for example, I have two good friends who are professional interpreters and I ask them this. I ask them, so how do you do? And they say, well, one of our codes of conduct is to become neutral. So we translate the information and we use uh, some of the words into a colloquial manner. And then we will translate that into uh, English colloquial manner. So when you have a, a professional interpreter, they are aware of those sort of issues and they will help you out through the process. But when you have someone that only speaks fully good English and didn't have that sort of training, then I think you do have you, you do run a little bit more um, in into it becomes challenge to understand was this information, you know, passed on the right way and did I get what I really wanted? I don't know if I'm making sense, but no, I think you, you I am, you know, there's, in other words, there's a difference between using a professional interpreter than using someone that is just fully capable of talking English. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and Louisa, one of the things that you had talked about as well was this idea of consent when working with marginalized individuals. How do you get informed consent from people who are, in many cases, intoxicated, uh, those who are in prison, or those who quite possibly might be under the influence? Um, well, so I think for people who are who are intoxicated, you, you don't. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's the that's the only I think reasonable answer to this. You cannot get informed consent. Um, now. I think also going back a little bit to what we said before, I just think there's a lot of things that we see and we observe, but just because we have access and we get that information doesn't give us the right to write about it. Um, and I think in order to, to have the right to write about it, so people need to have um, be able to have some say, they need to be able to give consent. Um, and so, I mean, there's a whole lot of data and a whole lot of time I spent with people that was incredibly informative for me, but that I just cannot use. Um, I think uh, in terms of, of uh, getting consent with people who are quite often under the influence, it only works if you are spending such significant amounts of time with them that you are catching them when they are not high. Um, and you are able to, to negotiate then, but then there's also people who, I mean, I, I have people who I see almost on a daily basis and I introduce myself to them again, um, several times each week because they forget who I am. And I think then whatever information you get, it's just, it cannot be covered by consent. That doesn't mean though that you cannot write in a general sense, um, about the, the pitfalls that may arise from, from something like this. It's, um, I mean, these are people who are confined, so they cannot leave. So I think the, the, this notion of, um, um, of, of, you know, hope that, um, that 
giving you information may lead to a betterment of their situation is something that you have to be very, very aware of and you have to be, um, you have to, in, I think, be very open and transparent about what you can give and what you cannot give, what your limits are. Um, and when working with people in prison, I always try to be um, quite distant, actually, and to put people in a passenger seat um, to discuss consent really point by point, one by one. Is it okay if I'm here? Is it okay if we talk? Um, you can stop anytime. You can ask me to leave anytime and also be very clear about limits. I can't improve your situation here. I will not be able to appear in court for you. I will not be able to testify on your behalf. Whatever you tell me will actually not improve your case. Because I think only if these expectations are as clear as they can be, I mean, they will always remain blurry, but as clear as they can be, only then can we have um, a, a, an ethical discussion. I think that's a brilliant reply. Uh, Jamila, how have you dealt with issues of consent, especially concerning sensitive material? Um, I think um, probably the most challenging is for those who could not read or write. So I had a couple of participants that they didn't know how to read and write. So therefore, I I spoke to my, I remember this was during my PhD, and I spoke to my supervisors and I told them, I'm just going to do a video. Um, a recording consent. So you have everything in record. You ask them and you record everything. You say, this is what the project is about. Um, this is what probably I'm going to ask you. Are you comfortable with this? Would you like to help me? And I found that that was the best way of of moving on with things really was just to record and have everything in record. I find sometimes papers can be intimidating and papers sometimes mean contracts to people when they sign forms and some people were not comfortable with it, but they were still willing to uh, be part of the project. So I found this way of saying, all right, so if you're not comfortable with a piece of paper, you're not comfortable in saying to me verbally that you agree on it. So to save you know, yourself from problems, um, you record it and you have their permission on record. And you go on from it. So, yeah. I think that's an excellent idea. And I think that'll tie into um, some of the concluding remarks towards the end of this program. Can I just add like one thing to that? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Um, so I think also another important thing about consent is that it is repeated. Because just because you got consent with somebody in the beginning and you might work with them for months or years, doesn't mean that, you know, they will... Um, they will also consent along the line. And I think in terms of what we were saying before, positionality and, and you know, you're not a therapist and you're not taking that role and you're supposed to make it clear that you cannot take that role. If you bring consent back into the picture, you're also reiterating your positionality as a researcher who is going to write about this. Um, and I think that can, can deconstruct expectations that may arise that, um, you know, blur the boundaries and make you more of a friend or more of a therapist because you're, you're kind of putting things back into place. So you would say that it kind of um, makes a discussion more authentic in that sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Uh, Jamila, you talk about, again, dealing with this idea of positionality and the role as the researcher. 
um, one of the concerns or maybe this isn't a concern, but it could be an ethical implication of what happens to the researcher when they become part of the material that they're studying. So, yeah. uh, Jamila, in your case, it would be part of the ritual performance. Can you expand on the ethical implications behind that, please? Yeah, I mean, it really depends what type of research you are dealing with. Uh, you know, what is your departure point? And my departure point was always a participant observer position. And that was coming from my dance background. So I thought, and I, I argued, I argue this very clearly. I cannot speak about a ritual practice and embodied experience without me going through the process myself. So that was my departure point. I said, I can, you know, I can't talk about green tea without drinking it, kind of attitude. <laughs> so, because my project was about movement and body and embodied experience and this corporeal experience, you know, sensations, what happens in what happens in between, after, before, I said to myself, right, I need to do this. I need to go into it. I need to experience. I need to do it in, in different uh, times, at different times, with different groups, in different regions, so that I could really understand what is the process. And obviously, being in, then it kind of takes you to a different level because there's a different relation now with experience. It's almost as if somehow you can relate to the participant experience because you experience yourself. Now, again, you bring your own agenda, you bring your own um, background, as in, do I talk about this embodied experience as a dancer and I look at the choreographic movement, or do I talk about it as uh, from a somatic perspective, body and mind relationship, what is happening to the to the uh, to the movement? Where is the mind? Where is the body? Is there a space for connection? Uh, and by reflecting on your own experience, you can reach to some sort of um, proximity to the participant because when. For example, participants say, and when I reach my hands in that particular moment of the ritual, I've done it. So now I understand what is the symbolic meaning behind reaching the hands in that particular moment. And I could somehow relate to what they are saying, as opposed to just sit and watch. Mm -hmm. it's, it's totally different. Sitting and watch, then performing it, live with it. And I also did the opposite sometimes. Sometimes I would go to the rituals and say, today I'm not doing it. Today I'm just sitting down and watch. And they would also be aware. They would say, oh, Jamila, you're not participating today. And I said, no, no, today I'm just going to watch. And it would be really interesting to just sit and watch, which would be a completely different experience than being in it. So, again, it's this... Um, observer but participant which I never did was watch and then go participate I always would assume either A or B today I watch tomorrow I participate because I thought if I do both I will lose track, I will lose my focus, so that's how I, I decided to do and then obviously I wrote about it so I wrote about my own experience and and what does it mean for me? Hmm. And based of 
what it meant for me. How can I see this experience? Can I see this experience the same way they do? Or do I see it differently? Because I have a different background and I have a different understanding of body and mind. So, yeah. Interesting. Uh, Louisa, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, it was similar in that I felt that I cannot talk about what it means to sleep rough without at least trying to understand um, how how a day is experienced, how a week is experienced, um, if sleeping rough. Um, and so I think that um, that the sense of, of experiencing in your body um, a, a certain practice um, or a certain movement or a certain way of being is very important. I mean, for me, I, I can... There's just things that that we cannot uh, really cover in conversation. I mean, for me, um, one really striking thing was to um, to spend days and, and hours and hours and hours standing up. Um, how different that is to to the life I was usually leading, um, and what it means not only for for how we feel our body, because um, but also for how we perceive the environment. And the people I work with, they're standing uh, most hours of the day and they're standing at places that other people pass through, um, like the main station, for instance, um, because if they sit down, then they can be sent away. Um, this is something that would have never come up in conversation. At the same time, of course, I cannot assume that just because I was standing there with them for a while, we are sharing this experience in the same way. But it certainly brings us closer to... Um, to getting a shared understanding of what it may mean. Interesting. Um, if I could, uh, since this is also something that has come up quite a bit in discussions, at least within my own department, and Louisa, I'm sure you probably heard whisperings of it at Oxford, is the role that gender plays when conducting fieldwork, uh, especially with regards to safety. Uh, do either of you have any comments on that? Yeah. Uh, Louisa, do you want to go first? No, go ahead. That's fine. Okay. Um, yes, for me, gender definitely. I think I think I, I mentioned this right at the beginning. Was what is your position here? So I give you an example. When I went to do my research in Cyprus, the first thing that I was asked was, "Are you here to get married?" That was the first thing that the group asked me, the women, and and then later I understood why because. Uh, women that go to Cyprus from that particular Sufi group usually go there to get married when they are single. So they go there with their families or they go there with their sisters or their friends and they find someone and they get married in that particular community. So the first question was, if you are a single woman, are you here to get married? And if you're not here to get married, then what are you doing here? So it is, uh, you know, it's... Um, it's an interesting position to be in, so you have to be very clear on what you're doing and how you are doing. Um, and you also need to share, to a certain extent, how much you want to share, a little about your life, because participants need to know about you. It's this trusting again, is I'm giving you a lot of information, I expect something back. So you do have participants who want to know about you. They are also as well as curious about you as you are from them. So things as 
what is your age, what is your profession, what you do, are you single, are you not, and why are you coming here on your own? So there was always this idea of the woman being alone, particularly not in Cyprus and in South Africa, but in Iran. Why are you here as a single woman on your own? So there was always this. And, and some of the people, they were absolutely brilliant in ensuring that I was going from A to B in a safe way. So I would often get, um, people would say, hold on a second, my cousin will go with you, or my uncle will go with you, or my grandfather will take you somewhere. There was always this chaperone. And it, I didn't feel that it was a way of controlling me. It was really a generally interest of my safety, okay. if that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah? absolutely. And Louisa, yourself? Um, yeah, totally. I mean, I would span it much further than gender, I would really say it's like a, um, you know, all these, these parameters, gender, age, class, race, socioeconomic background. I mean, they play tremendous roles uh, in terms of the person, positionality we take, why we may, might get access to certain groups, why we uh, might not get access to others, um, what terms of data we can gather. Um, what I find striking, though, is that, I mean, these kinds of things enter more and more in fieldwork preparation, risk assessment, and ethics forms. Um, and they are, of course, a huge part of, um, you know, the talks we have in corridors and pubs about, about the research that we do, um, where it's always very much about, you know, how somebody's position changed because uh, they now have children or how... Um, you know, just generally the type of research collaborators that somebody could find is, is hugely um, determined by who we are ourselves, how we position ourselves, but also how we are being positioned. Um, what I find striking to this day, though, is that it's still very much absent in our published works. I mean, you very rarely find that a person situates um, him or herself very clearly in terms of how they positioned themselves and how they were positioned, not only what types of methods they used or what types of groups they worked with, but, you know, why that was and what that um, may have depended on. And I really hope that um, we will also include this more in our writing because it just, yeah, I mean, <laughs> a single mother researching, um, you know, motherhood is just different than, um, than a middle-aged white um, single man doing the same thing, for instance. Sure. And if I could add on that, because I know that that is something um, that I've come across in my own writings, and what I found really interesting and quite honestly very frustrating is that there is a certain perception of what ethnography is and mm -hmm. how ethnography should be implemented. And the people I find that tend to be the most critical are individuals from certain research backgrounds who have an idea of what ethnography is and then are irritated when they find that the the honesty of what ethnography actually is isn't regimented in a box. So um, they might say, uh, you need to write things in an ethnographic way. And the reality mm -hmm. is anybody who's actually an ethnographer will go, well, I just did. And, <laughs> and, the, and the reality is ethnography is messy. In fact, uh, one, of, one of the comments that keeps coming to mind is a quote that I've heard uh, by Woody Allen. And it says, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And yeah. anybody who's ever done ethnography, you can say, I'm going to study this. I'm going to do this. 
And then your positionality ends up coming in, or there's issues of reciprocity when you're engaging with other people. And the reality is when you're making relationships with individuals, relationships are messy. And it doesn't have to be a love relationship. It could be a friend relationship. It could be a political relationship. And I agree with you, Louisa. I think that those elements need to be stressed strongly in the research that we do. And that if we don't address those limitations and if we don't address those factors, we are creating a false sense of what research actually is. And I think that that definitely needs to be um, discussed in the work that we do. Um, If I could, since um, I know we've got a couple more items to address, if we could just sort of put two things together. Uh, This idea of establishing boundaries when we're dealing with individuals and informant anonymity, or anonymity, Um, sorry, my speaking's a bit off today. Uh, How do you deal with each of those elements? Uh, Louisa, could we start with you? I'm sure. Um, So I think establishing boundaries should be should be a part of um of your engagement with people from the very beginning and then also throughout and i mean what i did is is i made it part of consent um right that um that i asked very specifically can we discuss um you know how far i can accompany you how um how far i can go and where your limits are um, and then I was also very clear about where mine are and um, what I don't want to do and what position I don't want to be put in. Um, but then also to make sure to frequently check in um, because boundaries might shift um, and uh, they might get more rigid and they may get looser. And to just make sure that um, that there's a, a shared understanding of, of where we are. Um, in terms of anonymity, it's So I think it's it's very tricky because um, some of the people I work with, um, they would very much like to be recognized. Um, they they really like that that um, they can say things and that will be out there. But then there are also very real legal issues in some cases where it may not they may not officially be there or um, they may be escaping or. Um, you know, uh, so I think it's it's um, it's discussing what anonymity means, whether it can be granted, but then also discussing the consequences of um, of openly um, attaching somebody's name or somebody's identity to the information they give and what that may mean. Because I feel that sometimes people think about like, oh, there's going to be a book or there's going to be an article, and I want my voice in it. But that doesn't mean that uh, I want my family to know where I am or I want the police to know where I am or, Mm. um, you know, and and these things go together. So I think that's very important in a discussion Um, and to then also also figure out whether like anonymity is even like complete anonymity is even a thing that you're able to give. Um, Because if the research is is, um, in a specific location and people are known to each other, it's very hard to to discuss uh, and then that is a question of how do you then write about it? If people wish to stay anonymous, maybe you cannot work with stories. Um, or maybe you have to give the stories different parameters. And uh, then again, you have to disclose this. So I think it's a huge backlog that um, that comes with it, that you have to very consciously um, think through. But, but to just say, would you like to stay anonymous, yes or no, and then tick this box and I will deal with it later. I don't think that works. Right. And Jamila, do you have anything to add to that? 
Yeah, I mean, all my participants, they wish to be anonymous, all of them, all single of them. And with me, the issue was that they all knew each other because obviously they are from the same, they, they're part of the same community. They not necessarily go to the same religious rituals every week, but they will know each other. So the most interesting thing for me was the person who put me in, in contact with these women, in fact, was the most active person in getting the participants and engaging and promoting my project. But it was a single woman who did not wish to be part of the process. And I found this really interesting, as in she she's kind of the leader of the women of this community, but she's the first one to keep herself away from it. Mm. So there was this, you know, really interesting relationship between, in one hand, this person being active and helpful and giving me all these resources and even theological explanations and everything that I would need to accommodate my needs. But when it comes to the actual interview and speaking about the process, she wouldn't do it. Interesting. You know, all the other 26 did it, but not her. So it's it's really interesting to see how these dynamics operate and the reasons why would this person not be involved. Mm. Um, and then, you know, coming back to, um, to the fact that they all choose to be anonymous, I mean, it's literally I found that was the fact that they all knew each other. So how do you write then about a participant? How do you place the participant? Let's say, you know, uh, Joanna 46 coming from this particular neighborhood. How would you say, you know, if another participant reads the book or the article, they would identify this person? So how do you mask, you know, how, how much information do you, do you give about the participant without really revealing the identity? I think that's a really good point. Uh, and if I could, just to sort of wrap this up, <clears throat> we've covered quite a lot of things, boundaries, uh, informant anonymity, uh, issues of gender, issues of uh, making sure that we make sure that our informants are protected and that sort of thing. How would you advise universities to ensure a better safety for individuals and staff students who are going to do field work in highly sensitive areas what suggestions might you have um if i can go first yes I would say sure. because i was asked to do that actually in my university <clears throat> okay. and i think it would be really important especially for students, PhD students or whoever student that is going on to field work, to have proper inductions, to have workshops, seminars, to help them out, to understand what is an ethical form, how is it written, what do I need to, uh, what do I need to put in it, what do I don't have to, how do I address a participant, particularly if this is the first time that the student is doing it. And if it's not in the country or in their language or so, I think universities should really be engaging in preparing the student in a practical matter. Even I think workshops and seminars are extremely important, not just, you know, the student to understand what is ethnography from a theoretical point of view and read articles about it, but actually to speak to people who have done it and listen to the advisors and, you know, and tips and, and to get guidance from the beginning before embarking into the journey, while on a journey, and when they come back from the journey. 
Because it's that thing that you said with all these emotional and feelings of isolation and what happens if my own expectations as the researcher are not met. What happens if I go and I, and, you know, and I and I wrote on my research project that I would interview 15 people and only seven come up? So what is the justification now that I give to the university? Uh, it's, it's all these, and there are things that during field work you simply cannot control. So, and just go back to the example. What happens if I, you know, on my proposal I say 15 and I only come up with seven? Is it makes me less or more less professional? You know, it's all these questions. Or is it just because it just happened? Mm-hmm. You know, and how do you justify these just happened? Because you're the only one in the field that was inside understanding the dynamics and understanding, you know, why all of a sudden you have less participants that you expected. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Louisa, any other thoughts? Um, yeah. So I think apart from from preparation, um, response is also incredibly important. Uh, so for, for universities and departments and ethics body bodies to come up with effective response mechanism um, that in case something happens, there is a safety net. Um, that, and I think this is one thing and the other thing is uh, to d- demystify the whole process. Um, because preparation and awareness might lessen things, but they will not do away with it. I mean, human interactions are incredibly messy, life is incredibly messy, and things can just happen. And I think to demystify that those who are successful in the field or those who are make it or those who had very neat experiences where nothing happened um, or where they never went wrong or where they never had um, any uh, issues or I think it's very important to to understand that this may well be part of the process. Um, and what is important is not to do away with it, but what is important is how we deal with it then. Um, and I think the more we make it part and parcel of our experiences and move it to the center of um, of departmental discussions, um, the less we are we are creating additional barriers and additional problems for people who have had difficult experiences. Right. And I think I might also add this idea of what a, a neat experience is in anthropology is um, non-existent. I think we could all agree that exactly. nothing yeah. in life yeah. is neat. So yeah. anything that is presented as neat is the um, ethnographer's attempt to uh, create something that in reality wasn't like that in order to be able to tick the boxes so that they can get published or be accepted by their institutes or what have you. So I think as long as we're aware that nothing, in fact, is neat, um, hopefully it should give future resources, re- researchers a sense of relief that they are not alone in that sense. Mm. Yeah, um, and also understanding that this may not be what we actually strive for. Maybe we shouldn't strive mm. for creating this, this um, neat image. Maybe we should strive for creating something that does justice to the experience that, that yeah. we're having. Well, maybe we should strive for honesty, I think. Uh, maybe that's the objective we need to make. 
Well, that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. I'd like to thank Dr. Jamila Rodriguez and Dr. Louisa Schneider for joining us at the studio this afternoon. For those of you who've enjoyed the show, please feel free to explore our Facebook page at Coffee and Cocktails One, as well as our blog at coffeeandcocktails1.wordpress.com, where you can learn more about upcoming episodes. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week. (laughs) 